Lord Jesus, uh, come now by your spirit and your word and show us the beauty and the power of your authority and your compassion, even for us, for each of us. We ask this, we look forward to it, we receive it now. Amen. All right, so we have three amazing stories to work our way through today that you just saw um, and heard read uh, from the life of Jesus. Find your way in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Uh, that's where we'll be, verses 1 through 26. The first story is the calling of those early disciples. It starts in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So he's still in the region of Galilee at this point in time. Galilee is way up here, and uh, Jerusalem is way down here. So it is in the sticks, far, far from uh, Jerusalem. Uh, it's really an unlikely spot to launch a global ministry from. Um, it's hardly a resort destination. It's not RTP, a center for commerce and tech. Um, mostly it's a region marked by agriculture and fishing. Um, but this humble place, Galilee, the lake of Gennesaret, it fits Jesus' humility. You get the sense that this global movement would truly be like no other. This was not going to be Jesus' CEO, but Jesus the suffering servant. And his choice of Galilee fits that identity. And so now he calls three, at this point, three or more Galileans to follow him. Look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, that is Peter, put out into the deep and let, your nets, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the, in the other boats, come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Uh, it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day for itinerant teachers, rabbis, to have students that literally followed them around as they learned from them. But what seems to be uncommon about this situation is that Jesus chose his disciples. Apparently, normally it worked the other way around. The disciple would approach the teacher, not the teacher approaching the disciple. Um, Professor David Garland, I like the way he said it. He said, Jesus does not put a sign up Put up a sign-up sheet like your softball, asking for volunteers, Messiah interested in a few good men and women, or post office hours like a prof when he will be available to discuss the kingdom of God with those who might be curious. No, Jesus calls men to follow him. 
And Luke is showing us here, even by this, by this situation, that Jesus has a different type of authority than a regular rabbi. This rabbi calls men and women to follow him. And they do. Now the spotlight here is on Peter. He's also called Simon. And his response to Jesus' call is worth us thinking about for a few minutes this morning. Simply put, Simon obeys Jesus, right? Simon gladly obeys Jesus, even when it makes little sense to him. Look back at verse 5. Jesus tells Simon after a night of zero fishing to put his nets out again. And so Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. It has to be a really pride-swallowing thing for Peter, professional fisherman, to go against all of his instincts and follow a fishing tip from a preacher, right? This is a huge, a huge example of humility from Peter. But even when it was counterintuitive for Peter, he does what Jesus asks, a remarkable expression of willing submission to Jesus' authority. He says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. I wonder, it's good to think, could you say that? When the way of Jesus makes little sense to you, could you say, but at your word, I will, and you fill in the blank? Is there something that you need to put in that blank that Jesus is asking of you? Is there something you're reluctant to put in that blank that Jesus is asking you? But at your word, I will fill in the blank. Everything needs to go in the blank if you want to follow Jesus. And that's what we see in the last verse of this first story, right? Verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Spotlight's a little bigger now. It includes a couple of other guys, um, two brothers, James and John. They would also, with Peter, become part of Jesus' inner circle of 12 disciples. Um, They're all fishermen. And when Jesus' call interrupts their work life, and really all of their life, as we're about to see, um, Luke says they left everything, everything, and they walk away from their, from their source of income. Um, and while, as you read the story, they may have returned to fishing from time to time, walking away from a family business cost them something. In Luke's words, it cost them everything. And when Matthew tells this story, he brings out another kind of cost. Matthew says, going on from there, he saw two brothers, two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Imagine this may have been the harder cost, right? They left their dad in the boat. He would have to get along without them. Any dreams he had of passing on a family business, um, they were dashed in that moment. 
It's not, it's not that Jesus was anti-family, right? The New Testament's more than clear on the priority of caring for your family. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, and I, I like the way the King James says this. It says, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel, right? But Jesus is also equally clear about to whom supreme allegiance must be given. Later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is going to say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? These fishermen model it for us with a supreme and sacrificial obedience to Jesus. If I was going to put a label on what it means to follow based on these brothers' lives, I would say it means glad forsaking. No one was twisting their arms. No one was browbeating them. And they react like it was the greatest privilege in the world to walk away from everything. They act like it was worth it. And they were right. In glad submission to the call of Jesus to follow and forsake everything. To leave fish and become what Jesus calls a fisher of men. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. But for from now on, you will be catching men. Jesus calls those who follow him to be fishers of men. He wants you to share the good news of Christ with others. There's a huge barrier to that, though, in our culture. And I ran across this study a number of years ago, and as best I can tell, the statistics are still pretty steady. Um, percentage of Americans who have never known a Buddhist, 59% never known a Buddhist. 46% have never known a Muslim. 40%, almost the same percentage, have never known, never known an evangelical Christian. 40%, almost half of your neighbors, your coworkers, as far as they know, have never met an evangelical Christian. And so that raises, of course, the question, are you a secret Christian? Like, are you covert? Do the people around you know that you follow Christ? Your coworkers, your neighbor, your family, your classmates. Praying for a chance to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus with those around you can be a good next step in going fishing for some of us. Right? So who is this country preacher who calls men to follow him like this and they follow him willingly no matter the cost? Luke's going to show us he's the king of kings and he's building a kingdom, a community of believers and he's calling here his first disciples to follow him and become fishers of men rather than just fishers of fish. This is news that from the very first disciples who are called, Jesus intends his followers to share. Right? And that's our first story. Let's look at the second story. It's the cleansing of a leper in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, leprosy, 
Leprosy covered a wide range of skin diseases in the first century. Um, scribes counted as many as 72 different skin afflictions that fell under the Old Testament dermatology manual in Leviticus 13 and 14. The dread of this contagion is reflected in the language of those chapters. Here's from Leviticus 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp, that is, outside the people of God. Scholars record that in that day, lepers were required to stand at a distance of 50 paces from healthy society. You thought our social distancing was tough at six feet, right? 50 paces. A leper's entrance into a house contaminated it, and a leper standing under a tree polluted anyone who passed under it. This man, though, violates all their social distancing requirements as he throws himself at Jesus' feet and upon his mercy. It's pretty amazing. He doesn't doubt Jesus' ability to heal. He believes Jesus can do what really only God can do. But he has lingering doubts about whether Jesus wants to heal him. Would Jesus really do this for him? And this is, this is where our, our doubts often lie, I think. We would agree that God is a loving God, but does he love me? Does he care about me? And Jesus' little two-phrase reply speaks to our doubts about that just as much as to the lepers. He says in verse 13, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. I, I love the way the Living Bible puts it. Jesus reached out and touched the man and said, of course I will be healed. Jesus is willing, right? Even towards leprosy-scarred social pariahs like this leper, Jesus is willing. This man matters to Jesus. Jesus is willing. Even towards sin-scarred folks like you and like me, we matter to him too. And don't miss the fact that Jesus touched him. You saw it in the video portrayal. He touched the leper. This is, a, this is a remarkable act of com compassion. You wonder how long it had been since anybody touched this guy. Had it been years? Had it been decades? And if this was anybody but Jesus, this act would have rendered them unclean according to the law. But Jesus' holiness is more contagious than this man's disease. One writer said, we are witnessing a reverse contagion. And he is cleansed immediately by the touch and the pronouncement of Jesus. See, be before modern antibiotics were, came into play, uh, leprosy was simply beyond the healers of the day. Uh, in the Old Testament, leprosy was often regarded as a divine punishment of sorts, the cure of which could only really be affected by God. And such is the compassionate, even the divine authority of this man, Jesus, 
Moved by compassion, he does what only God can do. He cleanses this man. And in the New Testament, the language is it's never said that a leper is healed. A leper is always cleansed in the New Testament. Verse 14, Jesus charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. So Jesus is following the Old Testament regs here, right? In restoring this man to health and to the people of God. Go to the priest, let him certify that you're clean. But more than just following the Old Testament, with this certification from the priest, Jesus is giving this man his life back, his family back, his place back amongst the people of God. Now there's a there's a practical necessity to Jesus' instructions here too as, he's, as he says, only the priest. Don't tell anyone else. Because as his message, as his fame begins to spread, Jesus' message is in danger of being subsumed by his miracles, right? Jesus clearly intended his miracles to be signs that pointed to his message, to whom he truly was, the very Son of God, the humble King who came to cleanse and deliver us from our sins, but this command to silence, except for the priest, is something the leper can't seem to obey. In verse 15, now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. In Mark's gospel, he lays this uh, kind of campaign leak um, squarely at the feet of this ex-leper. He says, but this man, this leper, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. Right. Professor James Edwards ends this encounter uh, with the leper with his beautiful insight from his Mark commentary. He says, this story began with Jesus on the inside and the leper on the outside of society. But at the end of the story, Jesus is outside in lonely places, and Jesus and the leper have traded places. Early in his ministry, Jesus is already an outsider in human society. He is cast in the role of the servant of the Lord who bears the iniquity of others and whose bearing of them causes him to be numbered with the transgressors. And he notices that Jesus and the leper have traded places. Jesus has taken the leper's place as the outsider, symbolic of taking the sinner's place. Symbolic of taking our place. It foreshadows what Jesus will do on the cross. He will take our place there. Jesus makes a way for this outcast to be welcomed back into God's people, even as he steps outside. Such is the love of our king for the least of us, right? for the worst of us. The ones of us who feel like we're beyond the reach of his love, who know we aren't good enough to be let in, it's precisely for us that Jesus makes a way to enter his kingdom where evil and sickness will be banished forever. Do you believe that the love and care and mercy of Jesus even reaches you? When the story spread, great crowds, it says, gathered to hear him. And Jesus' response to first century fame and celebrity is that verse in verse 16. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And as I've read the life of Jesus, if there's an evident prayer practice in the life of Jesus, 
It's this one. To steal away alone or with friends, to be with his father for longer times of prayer. If you want to pray like Jesus, longer times alone with the father would be a great place to start. Carson will probably talk more about that next week. But when you run on to our third story, this one is the healing of a paralyzed man in verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So they came all the way up to Galilee from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, Jesus said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Luke says that Jesus saw their faith. How can you see faith? What does faith look like? Well, in this case, when they tore the roof off to lower their friend down in front of Jesus, he saw faith. Professor James Edwards says, if an opening to Jesus cannot be found, one must be made. That is the description of faith. It will remove any obstacle, even a roof if necessary, to get to Jesus. And in response to this visible display of faith, Jesus pronounces that this paralyzed man's sins are forgiven which is awesome, but that's not why they brought him, right? He needs to be healed, not forgiven. But, but in, in, in their mind back in the day, sickness and sin wouldn't have been totally unrelated. In fact, they would have, they would have had a pretty direct connection most likely. Um, if you're sick, the question would be, what'd you do? Now it's not, it's not that sickness and sin are totally unrelated. It's just not always a direct one-to-one correspondence, right? Sickness is a result of sin in our world. All sickness, in some sense, is caused by the presence of sin. It's just not that all of my sickness is caused by my sin directly. Yet surely some suffering and even some sickness is a direct result of our own choices. That could have been the case here, but we simply aren't told the cause of his condition. Professor Dale Bruner says, we are surprised, too, that Jesus handles paralysis by forgiveness. Your sickness is healed would have made more sense. But when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, we get the impression that Jesus does word surgery, that he reaches down beneath the man's paralysis to his guilt and removing that cures him at his roots. Perhaps there's something that matters more even than being healed, even if you're paralyzed. Imagine that. You're paralyzed. You can't even walk about on your own. What could possibly matter more than being healed? Jesus says being forgiven matters more, more than anything. And in light of that, Jesus pronounces his sins forgiven, this man's sins forgiven. He doesn't merely announce it. He declares it like in a causative sense. He's going to make that crystal clear in just a moment. And the scribes pick up on this. 
The scribes were the Bible scholars of the day, and they knew all too well who alone had authority to forgive sins. And they knew what it meant to claim that authority. It was blasphemy. Claiming to be able to do what was purity, purely God's prerogative, was blasphemy. And they're right. This is blasphemy. Unless Jesus can back it up and actually forgive sins. But how would you prove that? Well, that's, that's what Jesus does next. In verse 21 and 22, Luke puts the scribes' charge in question form. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? So Jesus knew what they were thinking, which is a little unnerving, right? Jesus knows what people think. Perhaps it was supernatural, but not necessarily. I mean, Jesus knew people, right? He knew these leaders. He knew what they were thinking, one way or another. Matthew colors in the heart behind their accusing question when he writes, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Something important there. Reject Jesus' claims, and you align yourself with an evil ideology, Jesus says. He knew their thoughts, he knew the paralyzed man's sins, and he could declare them all forgiven. Who is this guy who knows us so well? Verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise Pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. And for the life of me, how, how the Bible translators could not put an exclamation point or two on that statement <laughs> is beyond me. They put a period. <laughs> this is amazing, right? The guy who'd just been carried in leaves carrying his mat, uh, skipping, I like to think, right? But beyond that physical mir miracle, Jesus now has claimed and proved the ability to forgive sins. I like the way Tim Keller illustrates it. He says, let's say Tom, Dick, and Harry are talking. Tom punches Dick smack in the mouth. There's blood everywhere. Then Harry goes up to Tom, the one who punched, and says, Tom, I forgive you for punching Dick in the mouth. It's all right. It's over. What is Dick going to say, the one who's been punched, once he's calmed down? He's going to say, Harry, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. He didn't punch you in the mouth. He punched me. And then Keller says, you can only forgive a sin if it's against you. That's why when Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, he's actually saying, your sins have really been against me. The only person who can possibly say that, a human being, that to a human being would be their creator, Jesus Christ, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God Almighty. Jesus doesn't just talk the talk of forgiveness. He walks the walk, right? 
and the paralytic walks right out of that room as a result. Now, do you understand what that means? It means that all of your sins, all of them, every single one, each selfish, dark deed that you have thought or done, all that you can remember, and the ones you've tried so hard to forget, and even the ones you didn't know you committed. The Old Testament has a category of sins called sins of ignorance. There's a whole pile of sins you committed you didn't even know you committed. All of those sins, Jesus says and demonstrates here, he has the authority to forgive them all, to wipe your slate clean, to give you a fresh start, holy, perfectly, eternally clean. And all these amazing stories that we're reading in Luke so far, right? Um, all the things we're thinking about, they're designed to show us who Jesus is, what life near him is like, what life in the kingdom can be like, what this king is like, and what kind of amazing authority he has. He has divine authority to heal and to forgive. All of these miracles we're seeing in Luke so far, the cleansing of the man with an unclean spirit, the healing of Simon's mother-in-law, the casting out of many demons and healing of many with diseases, the catch of fish, even the cleansing of the leper, none of these compare with the miracle of the forgiving of sins. And Jesus has authority to forgive them all. This is not idle chatter. He proved it when he told the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man did it. It's amazing. Don't, don't miss it. Don't forget it or limit it or water it down. He has authority to forgive all of your sins and mine. All of them. There's an old hymn. I love the way it says it. It says, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. From the accursed load. This is the very best of news. There's forgiveness in Jesus' kingdom. We no longer, who trust and hope in him, have to bear the accursed load of our sin anymore. So this morning in faith, draw near, draw near to the Son of Man. He has authority to forgive all of your sin. Now, before we leave this last story, I want to point out just a couple of details. Um, it's, good, it's a good practice when you read these stories to find yourself somewhere in Jesus' story, right? And in this story, we're like the paralyzed man. He brought nothing to this encounter. He was paralyzed. He couldn't even get there on his own. There are no good works presented He's totally helpless. He just comes to Jesus and is both healed and forgiven. This is pure grace. Maybe you feel like this guy this morning. 
You're helpless to make yourself acceptable to God, and you're right, and that's okay. In fact, it's essential. You have to be paralyzed before you can be raised, right? And until we acknowledge our sin and that we have a great need for a Savior, resurrection to newness of life will always be out of our reach. We are like the paralyzed man. But in a sense, too, we need to be like his friends. Um, you notice, if you can look back up to verse 2, it's, it refers to Jesus seeing their faith, not his faith. Their faith, it's plural. And we see this throughout the Gospels, really, of one person's faith bringing another person to Jesus. We see it when, when parents plead with Jesus on behalf of their ailing child. They bring that child to Jesus in the gospel accounts. And Jesus hears. And Jesus heals. We've seen it just in the last chapter of Luke, where friends brought ailing friends to Jesus from all the towns and villages for Jesus to heal, to cast out demons. We saw it when Jesus was brought to Peter's mother-in-law, who was bedridden, and she was healed. I like the way Dale Bruner says it. He says, there is such a thing in the Gospels as intercessory faith. The way we carry friends to Jesus today is by praying for them. Prayer is the means whereby we bring those we love to Jesus in our day. Prayer matters, then, even when the recipient of those prayers is unable or unwilling to pray on their own. Prayer still matters. It's a huge incentive to be faithful, maybe even daily, in praying for your friends and your family who need to be brought to Jesus in some way. Your prayers matter in that, in a mysterious way to be sure, but they matter nonetheless. Uh, when time allows, Steph and I almost every evening try to go out and walk uh, our neighborhood. And part of what we do is we try to pray for somebody in our family and we try to pray for one of our neighbors as we walk by their, by their house. Um, and just reading this passage again this week made me realize how steadfast I need to be in that practice of praying for those neighbors. I hope you're praying for your neighbors. Why do you think you live in that neighborhood? Um, your prayers matter. Really cool resource to help. It's called Bless Every Home. It's a website. Um, you can go to it, and you can subscribe, and they'll give you a map of your neighborhood with your neighbor's names on the houses and a way to record that you're praying for them as you pray. And you, if you would, log in, tell them you're from North Wake, because they keep track of us. <laughs> like everything online, right? Um, and... I don't know if you can see that very well, but there are um, right now 90 families at Northwake. There's a fraction of Northwake. 90 families are these lights in the neighborhood. And we've prayed 25,000 prayers for our neighbors. Way the heck more than that. I don't log my prayers in this thing very much. So way the heck more than that. But there are, this is significant, 2,616 homes have been adopted and prayed for by Northwakers uh, driving through, wandering around their neighborhoods. Man, what if we all joined in? And I know many of you are doing this and you're not using the app. It still counts, right? It still counts. Um, 
But I can't help but think that the fishing would be better if we prayed more faithfully. So let's start praying. Let's pray more. Let's see what God does because Jesus is calling men and women to follow still today. That's why most of you are here. He still heals what cannot be healed. He still forgives sin. And so this morning, will you follow Jesus, what he has next for you? Will you follow him like Peter? So as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, we want to use this time to ready our hearts to come to Jesus for the grace that we need. Um, and so this morning as we prepare to do that, we're going to sing our prayer. And if, so if you'd stand, the worship team's going to lead us as we sing of our willingness to come to Jesus.